when people ask, how do you achieve the levels of profitability that you do? Or how do you achieve what you do with the number of hours you put in? I'm like, we just get more out of ourselves because we don't treat ourselves like single action figures in the box. Every skill that we have is deployed against a mix of roles over time. And as we get better, the mix changes and the roles change to your point. And it's absolutely the case that like roles are gonna outgrow you or morph out of you. As long as you're a player on the team who knows how to find and create new roles for yourself that add value. And in our system, you can literally propose them. And then suddenly I'm in a role where everyone's like, wow, that's the ideal scenario. So there are some people that are not in a place in their life or with their skills where they can hang and they do have to go or that they are disingenuous about commitments they have to go. But a lot more people are just accidentally in UX when they should be in UI. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. Building companies is inherently hard. When you're working in a startup, things move very fast. Teams grow and teams scale, and you can maintain the vision and maintain the values. Those are things that hold true. The culture is spread from one person to the next. It's something that we talk about with different thought leaders on an ongoing basis. But when it comes to org design, it's something that, if you're not intentional about it, it can be an afterthought. So, Sam Korkos, co-founder and CEO of Levels, sat down with Aaron Dingham, author of A Brave New Work. And we ended up reading this book internally and there were so many takeaways, so many things about the way to think how really a business has an operating system, a way of working. And if everybody agrees upon that operating system, well, things can start moving pretty fluidly. So Sam and Aaron sat down and they really dissected this idea of org design. What does it actually mean? And how can you think about having teams that essentially work autonomously and independently to keep pushing work forward and getting things done? The idea is to constantly remove bottlenecks and do what we do, focus on the work. Here's where they kick things off. We've read your book. We've implemented a lot of the ideas. There's a lot that we, there's a lot that we liked about it in terms of, uh, it certainly aligned with a lot of the, at least the, we'll call it the, the more idealistic way of building a company. <laughs> Yes. So what I, what I really want to talk to you about is we've started implementing a lot of these things and where the rubber meets the road, uh, there's a lot more friction and complexity than, uh, than maybe one would, one would hope for in doing yeah. that sort of thing. I think it's less about in some organizations, it's just like, uh, it's like uh, cultural resistance to change. People don't like change. Sure. That's not really the case for us. People actually really like the ideas. I think the biggest category that I wanted to get your thoughts on is the, the systems that call it the, um, we'll call it the, the API model or okay. in each organization, uh, are you familiar with the, uh, Many companies have these different types of organizations. Uber calls them platform teams and project teams. Sure. You familiar with that, that divide? Yep. And SpaceX has something similar where uh, 
some organizations, like hypothetically, it might be the the thermal team, mm-hmm. which is they don't quite have enough work to just like be completely independent. Yep. But every every piece of the puzzle has to check in with the thermal team to make sure their stuff doesn't melt. So they work right. more like a consultancy and they have this API model like you describe in the book. Um, but what 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 we found is that that works really well in a specific set of circumstances. And it seems it seems highly dependent on people performing extremely well and being mm. very responsive because there is there's there's little to no accountability when one of those APIs or consultancies doesn't perform well. Right. Because like hypothetically, if the consultancy is accountable to me, but I don't really work with them. I'm not paying attention. <laughs> Right. So these other people are not getting what they need and they get really demoralized and they can't fire them. They can right. give them feedback, but they don't really have to listen. And so like the only way for them to get anything done is through this, like what feels like this backdoor politicking of like whispering to the CEO to like get people in trouble. And that feels really yeah, bad. Totally. Whereas if they were on your team and they worked for you and they reported to you, you have much more authority and the ability to remedy that situation. So yeah, anyway, even if they just are on your team. Yeah, even exactly. So I, I, I'm curious what, what your thoughts are on that. And if, if this is just like an inherent fragility in that kind of a model. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the, one of the primary trade-offs and, and pendulum swings and dynamics that we see in org design is between centralization and decentralization between functionalization and functional integration. And, and what tends to happen is when we have functional organization, more like an Apple model or something, then, then it becomes all about, well, these functions have to collaborate really well together, which means they have to be highly coordinated, which means people have to do a good job and communicate well and all that. And then, uh, and then when we actually need to get something done, it requires an elaborate dance to to make it happen you can't force it with with reporting lines and you also can't force it with just identity um and in the functionally integrated system where you have essentially business units or micro factories or anything where you bring all the functions together into into product service units in one way or another and make a marketplace of them the the trade-off there is that sometimes you lack a little bit of that cohesive identity around what are the thermal standards? What are the thermal protocols? What, how do we know this person that's on this team is any good at thermal analysis, et cetera? And so you have um, sometimes a, a gap in expertise locally, or you just have a gap in standards and alignment across the different units. So those trade-offs are always there. And, and anybody that has listened to me talk for more than five minutes knows that org design is all trade-offs. Um, the way we would play with the dynamic you just described is we'd start by saying, is there, uh, is there an agreement that we can make about whether it makes us faster and more customer centric to have this as an area of practice or to integrate it within the teams themselves? So usually it's like, what are the, what are the things we want? It might be speed, it might be quality, might be performance, but whatever those variables are, we might have the debate of like, do we get more of that stuff if these skills are embedded inside teams amongst all the other skills? And then the other question is, or do we get them actually better when we're, when we isolate them? But the problem there is throttling and making sure the line isn't too long or that the performance is really high. Most of the complaints I hear with centralized functions like a thermal unit or, or really any quality control is it's just too slow, right? Like we need to do something and now we're waiting on them and they have a long line. And so then the whole organization grinds to a halt. 
So one of the agreements that we've used with within the Ready and and now a little bit within Murmur and certainly with our clients is like, if we're going to have a, a unit like that that isn't whose whose customer essentially is an internal user group, um, and you can call that a help desk, you can call that a center of excellence, you can call it whatever you want. The rule is uh, that that engagement that that purchase behavior that's happening between those two units is optional, but the but the process is mandatory. So we might have a policy that says you have to do thermal review in order to move forward with a part, but you can do it with the internal unit or you can do it with an external unit. So now we have a marketplace dynamic happening where it's like if they're not performing, if they're not getting the job done, and this works as an example even better with like a creative group or an internal agency or something like that, where yeah, it's like right. you can use them or you can use the market. It's your PL, it's your dollars. So go figure it out. And in some of these more sophisticated systems that I've studied, they even literally move money that way. So it's like the HR unit isn't too big because it's literally paid by the business units. And so if they don't want that service, if they don't want that annoyance, they won't pay for it. And that system has to shrink. And if they offer something they really want and they're really great, then it grows. So it becomes a real service provider, to your point. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but those are the things we play with in, in that order. And then we try to make sure that the agreements are there to support whatever that you know, structure looks like. Yeah, that makes sense. It's interesting also in the like internal external, the, the marketplace component is interesting because it's, it's sort of like um, they they talk about this in why AWS has been so successful, which is right. if, uh, if they open up their call center technology and nobody uses it, like not even Amazon uses it, right. that's a pretty good indication that their product is actually not as good as they think it is. Totally. Um, so it's it's a painful but really powerful necessary you know? necessary yeah totally because yeah. what you see over time is like any organization that's older than ten years or bigger than five thousand people there these functions take on a life of their own and they just get bigger they never get smaller and it's like are they actually getting better every year or are they just getting bigger every year so if we want to avoid that we have to create the rules of the game early that essentially put market forces on those functions this idea ties into performance management. So we'll, mm. we'll table the, the content. We'll, we'll table the content around like platform versus project team. We'll probably get back to it. But okay. the, it seems to be a very common thing. I, I've actually been hosting dinners with uh, a group of founders. I think I've mentioned this, that are all similarly staged, usually yeah. 50 to 100 employees. Um, it is shocking how identical all of the problems are. <laughs> it's just like, it's so predictable. The, the types of problems at each stage of complexity. Yeah. And there's some, as you know, there's some fudge factor. It's like, if it's 50 employees, if it's 70 employees, when they hit this problem, but there, there are these very distinct phase changes of complexity. Um, one of them that seems to be very common is around this stage. I was talking to Ale Resnick from, uh, who started Belong. Yeah. And he was saying that 70 was the point where they mm. hit these problems, where they had to implement performance management. Mm. And uh, like every, every company has some, some threshold where they realize there's some missing piece and they have to fix it. Um, we, we're there now. Um, we've been, we, we need to figure out a good way of giving people more direct feedback. I think mm -hmm. culturally we already have that. It just hasn't been institutionalized in a way in terms of a process, which I mm. think is a problem. Um, one of the other things that I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about now 
is we, we have been, we, we treat compensation data as confidential. Mm -hmm. Um, I personally don't care, but like the fact that Bridgewater doesn't share compensation data and they share basically everything else to me is an indication that there's probably a good reason for that of like the people who are taking it as far as you can take it, haven't taken it that far. Uh Um, I don't actually know. Do you have a sense of why they don't make compensation data public when they make everything else and public? I just mean internally available, not public externally. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, I, I have spent some time there and, and talked to a few folks. I don't know that I've asked this question directly. My sense is that in their ecosystem, there's quite a big differential around pay. Uh, based on the different levels of of role and execution that can happen in that kind of a marketplace, and that there's a sense that that might be disruptive rather than helpful. Um, because, you know, when you have a yeah. 10, 20, 30, 50x pay gap, um, mm. that's just a whole different animal than like Phil makes 10k more than me. Sure. Um, and, and so I believe that that may be one of the reasons. Uh, I also think that they're their goal and their orientation is around personal development. It's not necessarily around equity and balance. And so everything they do is about growing people fast and aggressively in a certain kind of way. And it's not necessarily about other values that might be held. So those are my two Mm. assessments. Um, You know, we've we've spent so much time looking at open and closed comp models, and I I definitely come down on the open side, having seen all the evidence. But, you know, to to each their own, the the main thing you're taking on when you go to open comp is actually just the the period of disruption while all the assumptions and stories get broken. Uh, and then once you get on the other side of that, it's fine. And it's also fine if you don't do it. You just have made right. a trade-off around certain principles. Yep, that makes yeah. sense. And and so this ties into the second category, which I think yeah. we're currently wrestling with. When, when we have this conversation about do we make compensation data available to everyone at the company, the, yeah. the conclusion was like, I think I was the only person saying yes. And it wasn't <laughs> like I actually cared. It was right. just like, yeah, sure, it's fine. And everyone else was a really firm no. And so it was not the hill I was willing to die really on. To climb, yeah. yeah. And the, the second category, which we're wrestling with right now, is around uh, performance management. Sure. Which is like, we've historically had things like one-on-ones, confidential. And like, we, we share all of our reportings. All of our meetings are reported. Everything gets shared. Yeah, I've watched not, a lot of them. You've watched a lot of them. Not, not a lot of our one-on-ones, though. Some of them are, sure. but most of them aren't. And people's performance is not made public. And so, like, we can take the, the Bridgewater example is a really interesting one of, like, I think they call them baseball cards, mm-hmm. where you get to see, well, like, here's Aaron. His strengths are organizational design, project management. His weaknesses are... He's a poor communicator. He's bad at this. He's bad at that. Sure. Like you can, and you see it, like you see it and everyone else sees it. And like, you know, who is performing well and who is underperforming. That's like people's status as a performer is visible to everyone. And it's not a secret or a surprise. Right. And we haven't done that. We've kept it very confidential. And some of the people on our team use softer language of like, we don't want to damage people's reputations. We want to make sure they Mm -hmm. save face. We don't want to like create problems for them or disrupt their lives. Um, but at the same time, like 
when, when that person departs and they depart for sort of ambiguous reasons, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a counter example. So when, when I did a podcast with Mark Randolph, who started Netflix, um, he, one of the things that he said is people notice what you tolerate. Yeah. And like, if they see poor performance and it's not called out as poor performance, and you don't say like, we are firing this person because of performance reasons. And if you just like let them sort of create their own narrative and you just let it go, then you're not really reinforcing it and people don't learn anything. And you've actually, I think, created more anxiety, but it's also mm -hmm. feels kind of mean. And <laughs> that's mean is like a, a childish term to use, but it's like you're, it, it can almost feel like you're, you're using somebody as an example. Like you're, sure. you're burning them at the stake as like a threat. So <laughs> I don't know what the right, I don't know yeah. what the right balance is there. And we're, we're struggling to figure out, do we, do we make compensation, not compensation, do we make, uh, performance conversations public to everyone? Do right. we make, like, do we have a chart that says like, Aaron is a high performer and, and Bob is a low performer. And that's just like visible mm -hmm. to everyone on the team or not. I, I don't know what the right model is here. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, there's so much to say about this. You could do an entire podcast just on this question. The one thing that I, that I have noticed throughout my career is that organizations love to do this thing of these people are top performers or high potential employees, and these people aren't. And it's, it's binary and it's very simple. And the top performers get to go to Hawaii and the other ones, you know, get a performance plan. My first question to you would be for levels and for you, what does performance mean? What is performance? Because actually this feels a lot like the budgeting question for me when people are like, should we budget or should we not budget? I'm like, yeah. what is budgeting? What are you actually trying to do with the word budgeting? And then let's talk about it. And in actuality, most people are trying to do three things with budgeting, not one. And then you can talk about the right way to do each of those three things. I think the same story is true here where it's like we use this catch-all phrase of performance management, but we, we then have to break it down. So what, how would you define yeah. performance? What does performance look like? I, I would say, so a piece of it is, this is one that we have not done as good a job with, is people should know where they stand. Mm -hmm. It should not be a surprise when somebody gets a note that says like, you are not performing and we're firing you. Mm -hmm. So we've done a lot of work in the last six months to make that much more clear to people. I think we still have a long way to go. Sure. I think we've come, we've come some way. It, what's interesting, and I actually didn't expect this, uh, the people who were asking for performance reviews were not managers. It was the people being managed. Of course, yeah. They want to know, like, am I doing well? It was like, there's, there's a <laughs> subtext as well. Like, am I going to be fired or not? Please let me sure. know. And <laughs> also, am I valuable as a person? Yeah. And, how, you know, how do how I feel I about myself? Yeah. Totally. We need to do better with that. So there's, a, there's that people component. Um, the way that I view performance is if you, if you hire somebody with a set of expectations of what they will deliver, mm -hmm. are they delivering against that or not? Are right. they reliable? Can you trust them to do things? Do they communicate? Do they match the culture? And like we have had some people who really did not do the things that we thought that they were capable of when we hired them. Right, right. And in, in some organizations, those people just coast. Sure. I, uh, I have a, uh, this is going to be a, a mildly offensive statement, but I have a friend who works at, at a, an old, large 
company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he joined shortly after college and he okay. left. He left out for a few years, very frustrated. He, he described it as baby boomer daycare. Yeah. Where it's just like, there's all these people. <laughs> they don't really do anything. Right. Nobody so knows. Move paper around. Yeah. They just, they're just there. And the company is just like slowly dying and nobody seems to care. And so he left, but it's, uh, it's, if, if nobody, if, if somebody isn't paying attention, poor performers will become the entire organization because people start to look around and it, it really is not fair that those people are at the company being compensated in the same way. Mm-hmm. When you have people who are at the same level with the same expectations who are delivering extremely high quality work. And so the, if you want to maintain a level of talent density, you really, it's, it's not just about finding really good people and retaining them and promoting them doing all this. It's also, you have to remove people who are causing problems who don't uh, perform the way you want them to. So I think right. of it in, in several dimensions, but those are the two right now that I'm thinking about the most. That makes sense to me. And I, I, I have some similar dimensions. I mean, for me, perf- first of all, performance is it to me is broad spectrum. So like if, if I have an expectation, I don't care if that's a principle level or a value level expectation or a mathematical expectation. It's still just, are you doing what you said you'd do? Are you doing what we said we'd do? Are you playing the game according to the rules that we play? And, and then are you able to, to deliver? Um, so part of that to me is commitments and outcomes, which is like, what are you committing to? What, what outcomes do you need to deliver that you're, that you're bought into? Um, and are you able to do that? And part of that is actually more about developing mastery. So like, what is the vector of your development, your skill development, your rate of improvement? You know, all that stuff matters too, right? Cause even if somebody can do what they say they can do, but they don't grow at all over five years, that's probably not a great sign. And it's gonna, it's gonna sort of stall out the, the culture in some way, shape or form. What's weird about performance management to me is that it is a couple things. Number one, it generally tends to be unidirectional. So it's whatever this leader thinks about this individual is performance management. And, and in actuality, it's like performance is a more of a team sport than an individual sport. There's very vanishingly few things that we do alone completely that result in actual business performance. Most of it is collaborative. And then once we are doing it, who decides what good looks like. And the classic example of this in my business in, in facilitation is someone who has a certain kind of identity and background and life story will say, this is how you should facilitate. You should be strong and vocal and loud and you drive the room. And then someone will come in with a different background, a different identity, maybe a different, uh, you know, gender identity, color, skin, et cetera. Maybe they have a totally different style. And so it's like, oh no, you're not performing as a facilitator because you don't facilitate the way I facilitate. But actually maybe the audience is happy, right? And so a lot of it boils down to who do we ask? So a lot of, a lot of performance for me is about reputation and as much as possible. And, and we've struggled with this too, in, in different periods of our history, but as much as possible, we've tried to build systems where reputation drives a lot of outcomes for people, how they're perceived by their peers, who wants to work with them, which clients want to work with them at what level, how much demand on their time and existence there is like those social signals tell us a lot. Then there's the feedback component, which you were talking about, which is like people want to know how they're doing and they want that feedback and they want it for personal validation and they want it for career development and pathing and they want to do it so they can not be scared they're going to get fired. And so figuring out a way to make sure that the right people are getting feedback is critical. And again, not just feedback from one perspective, but from the perspectives that matter for for performance in that role. So that really matters to me. 
And I think at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is stitch together a system where you don't have to do a once a year, one person top down performance review, but actually you have a set of agreements and a set of rituals and habits that are creating that clarity all the time. And then if something isn't working, there's a way to disrupt it. And so as an example, at the ready, if you are not a good teammate or clients don't like working with you, eventually you're not going to be on a project. And when you're not in a project, we have an agreement that says, if you're not in a project for a certain amount of time, we need to have a conversation. And so we let the marketplace decide like, uh oh, this isn't working. Let's talk about it. But by the same token, maybe you have, maybe you're killing it in the market and, you, and you're billing a lot, but people are not responding to, to what it means to work with you. They don't like, maybe you're an asshole, whatever it is. We also have an agreement that's called member review where someone can say, hey, uh, I propose that we review the membership of Sam. And, and why is that? Well, for these reasons. And then a set of different roles and perspectives that we've preordained come together and they review Sam's membership. And is this working? You know, and we go get the data we need and have that conversation. But, but both of those things are kind of organic and, and emergent. They're not happening on a schedule and they're also not happening directed by me or by any other kind of figure who has power. They're just part of the rules of the game and how it works. And, and that's not perfect, to be honest. There are real trade-offs in that. But as much as possible, I like to design these things to be automatic and scalable rather than uh, big time sucks and time drains, especially when they're inaccurate. Like one person telling me that I'm good or bad at something is not very useful to me. And it's a huge time drain. But if I have ways to get information regularly from lots of different perspectives and I have an overall reputational score in the system, then that adds up to something a little bit more uh, meaty. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that because the one of the one of the performance challenges that we had, somebody we had to let go from the company, mm. the, the first indications that I had that something was wrong was we assigned them to a project and the person leading that project said, like, can okay. I, I have know. somebody else on this project, <laughs> yeah. please? Yeah. It was like, that's a weird thing to say. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting mechanism. Yeah. And we have all of our teams managing their own membership. So we don't assign anybody to anything. It's always a two-way match. And that means that if anybody on a team at any time is voted off the island, they're voted off the island. So it's like, you're not on the UX team anymore. Uh-oh, what do you do here then? And then there's a, you know, a point to have a conversation. So that can be helpful. It's more, um, you know, social and more Lord of the Flies, but yeah, I, I prefer it. Yeah, something that, uh, so we... Ms. and I, uh, who runs operations, who I know you've talked to, um, we've been thinking a lot about organizational design. And he maybe sent you a, yeah. a document that he wrote around this recently. Um, one of the things that became really, it became more clear to me is that, and tell me if this resonates with you, is that the, the first model that we wanted to have was much more around this, this idea of you can have people accountable to many other people. They don't have to be, there's not a strict hierarchy per se. You can have a, a person on the support team can be accountable to the CEO for a project. And it doesn't have to go through a manager in the typical hierarchy tree. It's much more, uh, it's much more like a network graph in terms of accountability and responsibility. And we kind of already have that. But what, what we realized in talking to a lot of people was that 
specifically people who worked at uh, Apple and Google and other larger companies is that the that works super well when everyone is performing. But it seems like you need a simple model at the bottom of the pyramid that is just like pure hierarchy of who reports to who because somebody needs to decide who gets fired if somebody's not performing. Like that's kind of a blunt way to say it. But somebody needs to make the call and it can't, you can't just have the CEO make every decision. I hope. So, yeah, so like there, there's like, uh, I have a graphic internally at the company of like, you can almost analogize it to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs of like, at the base of the pyramid, you need a clear, simple hierarchy of decision-making. If that's all functional, you can have this really great matrix system where people can, people can be accountable to every other department in the organization. Like one of the people on our team, Braden, is accountable to, I think, eight other people in leadership for specific projects. And that's amazing. Only one of whom he reports to. Um, but that's because Braden is performing really well. And if he wasn't, then, you, and he didn't have somebody who was, he was clearly reporting to, we wouldn't really have a, a way to take action to solve that problem. So I'm, I'm curious how you see these sorts of things fitting together and how, um, how the sort of, uh, how, how hierarchy in like a traditional, like leveling system fits into this sort of model. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing to think about is hierarchy of what? So I, we definitely believe in hierarchy at the ready and at murmur. Um, but we don't really believe in a hierarchy of people. We, we tend to focus on hierarchy of the work and the roles. Um, because the people are, are malleable. Like I can be CEO today and not CEO tomorrow. I can hold three roles. I can hold 10 roles. Um, the, what matters is actually the work and, and how the work is configured so that the work gets done. And one of the things that I jokingly wrote about in the book is, um, there's a, there's a philosopher slash uh, teacher who talks about, there's no word for accountability and finish accountability is something that is left when responsibility has been subtracted. So I. I just generally don't go in for the accountable to part, um, or at least not at, an, at a one-to-one -one level. Like when I think about what, who's accountable for, for what inside our businesses, they're accountable for lots of things or responsible for lots of things. They have objectives, outcomes, responsibilities that are written out as like things they need to do on a regular basis, et cetera. Those things all matter. And I think, I guess if I had to force it, I'd say we're, they're accountable to the team or teams where that work lives and is delivered. Um, so in some cases that accountability is to the user, in some cases that accountability is to a team that they service provide for. In other cases, it might just be to their colleagues on a team. Um, but, but the accountability or the responsibility is quite fluid and multivariant in that way. Um, and so what I'm really looking for is just are the right collection of roles with the right purposes and the right responsibilities and the right decision rights configured into the right teams or groups or circles who also have clear purpose and clear decision rights and clear spaces to operate in, in which they are responsible to, for their work and to each other. And if anybody is breaking agreements or commitments, then, they, then there are, are methods for dealing with that. And there are, uh, there are ways to create the, the accountability or the outcome of somebody being asked to leave. Um, I just generally find that to be more interesting as a social phenomenon rather than a one-to-one -one phenomenon. Um, because I get a lot more data. And so if I'm like, 
a kiss up kind of good at managing up person on a team and I manage my boss correctly in a traditional hierarchy, I'm kind of good. Like CYA is, is covered. But if I'm actually in a system like, like ours, I have to be in a positive net positive relationship with all these different roles and all these different configurations to maintain that reputation. And if I don't, I'm either going to hear about it in the form of feedback, or I'm going to hear about it in the form of a request that I no longer hold a role because I can call for an election on any role in the business at any time. Um, like there's going to be a consequence, a real consequence, but it's not going to come from one person. It might come from a place that we don't expect. And if there's a disagreement about how I'm showing up or what I'm delivering, et cetera, maybe that's an occasion for the whole team to update the agreement about that role or update the expectation around the outcome or mix up or change the way we're approaching it. Maybe, maybe no one is uh, to blame here. It's just a systems problem. But too often I find that when people just go down the path of like, uh, this person's a bad performer, this person's a good performer, they're missing out on the fact that like each of us performs different levels, different ways in different contexts. And so in the beginning of the pod, you said, you know, Aaron, you're good at this, but you're bad at, you're disorganized. Maybe I am. And so if I'm on a team where organization is paramount and demanded by the leader, I'm a, I'm a low performer, but I'm Aaron Dignan. Like I'm not a low performer. I'm right. a high performer in the places I could a be a high performer. In. Yeah. And so right. are you going to fire me from your company because I'm not organized? Probably that's a mistake, net net. Like I should be in a different set of roles where I can really grow for you. Um, nope. So I think those those are the dynamics that I like to pull on when I'm like resisting the status quo way of doing this. That being said, um, a lot of people do have pattern recognition and pretty deep grooves around those dynamics. And like this is my clear line of you know sight. This is my person that that I need to make sure I'm okay with, and that tells me I'm good or bad, and gives me feedback, and like it's all in one nice package. And that is nice, man. It's nice to have one tidy little package, right? Mom and dad are right here. And I can just go to mom and dad whenever I want. It's very hard to be like, we got nine brothers here and we got to figure out who we are and how we're going to succeed in this world. And the dynamic is very, very different. Hmm. This is a, this is an interesting thing to dig into <laughs> because I think you and I might have a substantive disagreement on some oh, of good. the points. Um, That's more fun and it's yeah. better content. Yeah, like one of the things that you said, um, sometimes it's nobody's fault, it's a systems problem. Mm -hmm. In my mind, that means it's the CEO's fault. Mm -hmm. Like fundamentally, it's always somebody's fault. Yeah. And so. Oh, I agree with that. The problem yeah. is that that's not who gets blamed in those scenarios most of the time. It's the person sure. who's the low performer and they're out the door and the CEO right. goes back to lunch. Yeah, sometimes yeah. it's not there. Sometimes they are not the ones responsible. They're operating in a bad system. And it's really then the manager or the CEO who are ultimately responsible for whatever performance issues. I, I, I get that. Yeah, uh, I would agree. And I would say for, for what it's worth, and, and you understand this as, as someone yeah. that has several co-founders, like you can, that responsibility can be divided and allocated to different folks in different directions. But also if you're a member of a team, if you're a member of a football team and things are not going well, Yes, it's the captain's fault and the coach's fault, but also it's everybody's like, we all need to show up with a, with a let's fix it hat on and ideas could come right. from anywhere that might fix it. And so there has to be a little bit of an all hands on deck. We're responsible for our own house kind of vibe. Um, but to your point, the buck, if the buck has to stop somewhere, it stops with the person that sets the table. And the first person that sets the table is whoever starts the damn thing. So, right. you, you know, you are ultimately responsible for all the patterns that flow from that from yeah. that moment and those choices, For sure. at least yeah. until you step away. Yeah, I'm, I'm lucky in that this is my, my fourth company 
and yeah. I've made a lot of mistakes in past companies that I that's enough. Have, yeah, I have not I have not repeated most of them. One mistake that I made in the past was having co-founders and not being clear about mm. who makes what decisions. Yeah. And when when we brought on each person at levels as a co-founder, we have five co-founders total. But we made it very clear that at the end of the day, I'm the CEO, which means mm -hmm. we have to agree that we're all, even if it's four against one, it doesn't matter if I'm the one, that's what we're doing. And getting that alignment early was really important and saved us a lot of pain because there have been decisions that we've made that I was the only person who was really pushing for it. Like sure. a lot of the stuff around transparency, we had several of the co-founders who were very strongly against it. And we had a couple who were sort of passive. And yeah. I was the only one saying like, well, we I gotta got to do it. Here, we're doing it. Nice. And I think that turned out to be a really important decision that could not have happened uh, if it was not made clear. And if we didn't all agree and have this culture of disagree and commit, because we really did see it through and it went really well. Yeah, um, I mean, clarity, clarity around decision rights is absolutely key. And yep. I would say what that looks like to me at like an ultra, ultra varsity level is it's not just all decisions, it's in which decision spaces do I reserve the right to be CEO? And in which right. decision spaces does it benefit us to make decisions a different way? And so, you know, we have essentially, if you think about all the authority in the organization starting here, what gets distributed and what doesn't and what's, and how do we claw back things that we disagree with is a really interesting part of the journey. Um, and, and also, and you and I've talked about this a little bit, but for anyone who's listening, the difference between creating a permission culture versus a constraint culture. Because if you're in a permission culture, then you can't do anything until you're told you can. But if you're in a constraints culture, it's you can do anything until we say you can't, which means there's a lot of authority at the edge. And we actually, most of the agreements and decisions we're making are actually about restricting authority or focusing energy or clarifying or constraining what's possible, um, either with a policy or a process or a role or whatever the hell it is. Uh, that's a very different motion than folks are used to. And, and so it's like clarity, number one, and then number two, actually getting into the subtlety of like clarity about which kinds of decisions and what kind, what are the best ways to make those decisions? And you know, if you're trying to guess the weight of a cow, Sam's guess is not the best way to do that. Best way to do that is to average out all the guesses. If you're trying to figure out how to get out of a burning house, listen to Sam, because that's sure. a totally different context. It's a chaos context. So we do a lot of work with the Kinevin framework to look at like, which of our decisions are complicated, complex, simple, chaotic, disordered? And then what does that mean for where and how they should be made? Yeah, interesting. So I want to dig into one of the comments that you just made of yeah. like the CEO ultimately being responsible for the decisions, but coming up with some decisions that you give to people who are not the CEO, which obviously that is how organizations scale. Like totally. <laughs> in, my, in my own I wrote a memo on decision-making and like, for me, the definition of leadership is people who have been entrusted with decision-making authority of something that's strategically important. Yeah. Like it is scaling an org and building leadership is, is really just the transfer of decision-making authority. Um, that said, it's still, there's still a clear single line of accountability for every decision ultimately to the CEO. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'll give you some counter examples yeah. where I have seen these things be extremely toxic. Mm. I have 
So one, one example, we'll use the board as like the people who can make decisions that are not the CEO. Sure. And I know one company in particular where they've been, they've been performing really well, but the CEO has these two executives who are just really bad. They are incredibly culturally toxic. They mm. gossip a lot. They create all kinds of problems. But they have this really cozy relationship with the board mm. and he needs board approval to fire them. And he Look. can't. He's tried and they won't let him. And like having having some sort of like approval rights, I, I, I am a believer that the board should only have one responsibility, which is do you fire the CEO or not? Right. Like, if you believe that they are making the right choices, then like, leave it alone. Otherwise, you should fire the CEO if you don't trust their decision making. I think that's totally reasonable. All of the other stuff of like boards taking control from the CEO and like micromanaging their decisions. Yeah. It just, it, I, I cannot think of an example where this has been a good thing. Mm-mm. But like, this is one of the things where it's like, hypothetically, I'm trying to understand the model that you're presenting Yeah, of like, we agree that our head of growth should make decisions related to X, which we obviously do that right now, but ultimately he's accountable to me for that decision. And I can tell him whether or not we're going to do the thing. Mm -hmm. It's like, I think he's going to say with his group, they're going to come up with a proposal. And ideally my role is just to say, thumbs up, let's do that. Uh Uh-huh. But he doesn't have independent authority. It's a, it all will decisions in my, in my understanding of decision-making frameworks, all decisions have a single line of accountability to the CEO. Is that, Uh is that a misunderstanding or is that a different framework for how, how you think about it? It's a, well, it's a different and very acceptable framework. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It's step, but it's definitely different than the way we tend to, to look at it and, and advise around it. Um. In some contexts, that can be really helpful. So I'm not even saying it's it's a bad or a good thing. Yeah. Uh, but what I would say is this. W- the way I think about, first of all, the board situation is really easy to clear up. Uh, we want to put decision rights where the contact is greatest. So having people that are one day a month or one day a quarter looking at the business, making a decision about who I work with as a CEO, F that. Like that is not even close to, to our yeah. philosophy. Um, they, I agree. They essentially exist to do two things in my mind. One is to essentially bring different perspectives to bear societal, economic, social perspectives around our purpose and how we're, how we're manifesting that purpose in the world and picking somebody to, to set up the table. So, so we're right on the same page about that. Where I think we have a slight, uh, difference in approach or style is that I look at the decisions that each successive team, whether it be the leadership team, CEO, the board, whatever, every successive team all the way down, what the decisions they're actually making are decisions directly related to what they're doing. And then decisions about which decision spaces and purpose spaces they're carving out for other teams to operate within. And so it's it's more like a two-step accountability than a one-step. So you're talking about they make a decision, they bring it to you, you don't like it, you change it. That's like direct, direct connection. The way I think of it is I've given the studio circle along with my other, um, you know, leadership team members at what we call our source circle. We've given the studio circle that produces all our content a purpose around building the brand through content and, and some authority and decision rights around what we produce and where we produce it and where we send it and all that shit. And even, even a budget around how much to spend. 
once we do that in our model, I do not have the right to interrupt or disrupt that process, except by changing that charter or who fills that role of stewarding that circle. So I can be like, I don't like the last three decisions that y'all have made. I'm going to make a proposal that we reelect a new steward for that per, for that team. Or I can say, I don't like the last three decisions y'all have made. So I'm going to propose that we change the charter for that team. But I can't just go in and interrupt a decision in flight. It's, it's, it's the design, it's the blueprint of the organization that we actually have direct authority and accountability over. The executional reality is one step removed. And there are trade-offs there. And the trade-off we like about that is the level of ownership, intensity, you know, stewardship that we see from people when they can't be interrupted and when they're fully accountable for the result and the outcome. There's no like, well, I checked with whoever. We like that. The trade-off is that sometimes stuff happens that we don't like. Okay. Yeah. I, it sounds like we're, we're not as far off as maybe I thought with the, the difference in language that we were using. Yeah. Like okay. I, so tying into some of the specific language that you just used, which is I've given them the authority, which means like, it means that you can then take away the authority if something goes wrong. But yeah, I, like the whole point of giving them authority is because you trust them to make the decisions. And so it's not that. It's not that you're giving them the authority because you have that trust and they will come to you with some suggestions of what they want to do. I can tell you nine out of 10 times because we have the right people in the right roles. Yeah, yeah. People will but... come to me with a proposal. It's like, hey, all right, we just finished our content strategy. Here's what we're thinking. And I might have like a couple of things to add <laughs> that maybe yeah. they don't know because yeah. of context, different parts of the company. But usually I just go like, that looks good. And then that's yeah. it. And then they execute completely independently. And and we, for the, the only subtleties I would add is, first of all, we don't, nobody comes to me with anything because that like they're doing it, they're executing. So the only, I'll see it, basically I'll find out about it. But we do have what we call an advice process. And so if somebody's making a decision that they feel a little over their skis about or a little underskilled or a little, or they just want context and support, they can choose the right roles within the system to get advice from. And that might even include me or Rodney or one of the other people that have been here a long time. Um, but that advice does not come with strengths. So if somebody comes to me, yeah. and it's like, should I spend a hundred grand on this quarter from the Revolutionary War? And I'm like, no. And they do it. They're not fired for not doing what I said. It's just right. like, I told you. And now have you learned something? And like, can we put this into practice in, in the next time? So that's yeah. the first first clarification. And then the second one is, you know, we're thinking of when, when I say I I gave them that authority, to be very, very specific, because we work in a constraints-based system, what we actually did is we, the leadership team, the source circle, which is mostly made of elected members, by the way, it's a, it's a very democratic team, but it's a team with power, concentrated authority about making our content into that group of people before anyone could make content, any content they want at any price. And we actually concentrated that authority and said, no one else can make these sorts of decisions now because we're focusing it into this team. Um, and that was a consent-based decision with up to 10 or 11 other people. So it was not just me. The places that I make decisions that would be considered more of like a small, you know, just me or almost just me would be at the board level where Rodney and I hold the only two board seats. And there we do make fundamental decisions about the structure of the company and how we build it and, and, and what the rules of the game are um, with just the two of us, still with consent. But it, it, but it really acts, you know, a lot more like a board. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's turtles all the way down, but that's, that's the way we do it. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. 
there's definitely, I still feel like there's misalignment, but there are so many things that are similar. <laughs> I'm trying to parse apart some of these things. I think um, it's just about, well, it's just about what you want to prioritize and also what, um, I think the context matters. I think what, what kind of work you're doing at what timetable with what expectations, with what level sure. of complexity and lack of clarity, like all those things count for a lot. Um, but ultimately well, it does boil yeah. down to, to, you know, principles in action. Yeah. Like I, I think about a lot of these things come down to simple decision-making models, like a racing matrix. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think we've, we, we put together a lot of thoughts around how we thought decisions should be made. And it ended up basically reinventing the wheel of a racing matrix mm -hmm. and the the R of a responsible is basically what we have as a concept of a DRI, which is a pretty common yep. thing around a directly responsible individual. They are, they are the ones who are ultimately responsible for the outcome of a project. No matter what happens, they are the ones on the hook. Okay. Uh, Cross-functionally. Um, the, uh, the accountable person is who you're accountable to. Eventually there is like the bottom of that stack is the CEO. And so you might be accountable to the CEO or you might be accountable to the person running growth who is then accountable to the CEO or whatever it is. And the goal is to push those responsibilities to the edge of the system as much as possible, as opposed to concentrating decision-making authority in the CEO or in a very narrow set of people. You want to push that out as far as possible. Um, consulted is one that ha it, this is where I think a lot of companies get tripped up, which mm -hmm. is. In many organizations, consulted, people who are consulted have veto power over the project. And that's where a lot of these organizations get tripped up. Where You're kidding. Yeah, you end up with like this one over N squared problem of decision making, <laughs> where it's like you end up with 25 consultants and the odds that that project is going to get completed is effectively zero. Yep. So like we make it very clear, very much in the same way that you're describing of like, if you want to spend a hundred thousand dollars on a marketing project, like don't ask me for permission, but like you can ask people if they think it's a good idea and some will say yes, some will say no, but where, where I wonder if, where I feel like there's maybe a gap in the way that we're describing these things is you have this group that assigns a person to solve a problem, but the, the accountability model that I'm describing is there's a step before that, which is you have to align on what the problem is mm. and that person has to agree to it. So like they will say, here's what I think growth should do for the next 12 months. Mm -hmm. And then I say like, great, you should do that. And you're accountable to me for that thing, whether it's to me or whether it's to like a group of people, it doesn't matter, but it's like, we have now agreed that you're going to do the thing. Now you can go operate independently. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm, yeah. The, the, the accountability model seems very similar, but we seem to be using a very different language to describe it. Yeah. And also I think different, uh, mechanisms to accomplish the same goals. So mm. where, first of all, I think the racy model is generally kind of dumb. Um, I think responsible and accountable, if you look them up in the dictionary, literally use each other's word in their definition. So it's sure. like, what the fuck does that mean? Um, but at the end of the day, what we're talking about is who who's on the hook to actually do it and make it happen. For us, that's yeah. always one role or one team. Um, so that's clear. If we're wondering who like who is responsible if it doesn't go well, like how who's who needs to fix it, 
it's pretty easy to just say, well, is the role on a, in a team or a circle? Great. Then it's their problem. Is that nested in a super circle? Great. Then it's their problem. Like it's very clear always yeah. where the work lives in the hierarchy of work. So if something is going haywire in our growth team, we're going to hear about it in the source team. And then we're going to have to be ultimately responsible for fixing it. And if that doesn't happen, then the board's going to hear about it and then be responsible. So that that's very similar. But we don't feel the need to write that down for every freaking project we do or every role we create. It's obvious mm. because the structure is transparent and intuitive. Um, so I think that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, you know, what 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 does the definitional work around strategy or or what we're trying to accomplish is actually an agreement that we have about how we do strategy and how we do prioritization. And so every 120 days, every circle in the company is doing strategic work in concert with the others and seeing what they're doing and providing advice, et cetera. So there is a lot of calibration happening about what the goal is. But ultimately, that charter of that team that de describes its purpose, that's the main instrument for making sure we're getting the right things done. And then when we look hmm. at the strategies, we can offer advice along the lines of like, if that's your strategy and your plan, is that actually the best way to pursue that purpose? So if the purpose no. of growth is to create more leads than we know what to do with, which it more or less is more, more qualified, good, you know, aligned, sustainable leads than we know what to do with, then everything, everything that comes up strategically has to be put through that filter of like, is that happening? And if it's not happening, why? And does this strategy seem like it's well aligned to drive that? But again, we're not reviewing that from the perspective of we have to bless it. We're reviewing it from the perspective of they asked for advice on it from all the other people that they interact with and work with as a sure. team, and they're going to get it. And then if they don't take that advice two trimesters in a row and growth is not happening, then there's going to be a consequence. But in the meantime, yeah. it's, a, it's the model of like, let's let let's give everybody enough rope, right? Yeah, yeah. Sort of the model. Um, so okay. that's those are subtle differences, but I think they're just very, you know, slight different mechanisms. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I, I recognize in what you were just saying is I think we're actually talking about different steps in the process, mm -hmm. which is I, when the growth team has an idea for how they want to achieve certain growth goals, they can ask me if I think it's a good idea, but I don't, I, I'm not going to be the person that's, I'm in a consultative role. I'm not yeah. the veto in that conversation. Yeah. Um, it's the step before of like defining that accountability and that agreement model. Yeah. Of like before we have said that you are responsible for doing a thing, having that agreement in place is something that's what I, that's what I mean when I say the, the accountability, the, the single line of accountability to the CEO is like yeah. having that agreement first. Well, and for us, it's really, I think that makes sense. And and I think it's literally just a chain of agreements that are yeah. about the purpose and intent and scope of these different teams and roles so that it's very clear. Anyone can click into Murmur and two clicks later be like, oh yeah, the growth team is supposed to be accomplishing this with these right. responsibilities, with these decision rights. And is that happening or not? And then uh, right. related to that, here are some expectations about how we do strategy and when we do strategy. When it gets down to the level of a particular initiative or project, if it fits right. in the scope of that circle and their budget, I'll never hear about it and I don't right. want to hear about it. But if it's extracurricular, we have an initiatives agreement that's separate as well. So we make these nonlinear bets every 120 days as a team on stuff that doesn't fit in the structure. So it's like, here's the thing growth wants to do that's a wild swing. That that gets proposed as a bet at our at our offsite, and then and then people actually do weigh in on that, and there is ultimately a consent moment for for a part of the membership to to buy into that. 
but but again, even there, it's often multi-perspective and, and there isn't like a final say person. In, in some ways, what's interesting about our model, maybe this is maybe this is the interesting bit. Because we run the whole company on consent, with the exception of decision rights that a role has, like if I hold, I hold a finance role, for example, I like set the budget for those initiatives total. That's not a debate. Like I set the budget. Like if I say right. it's 300 grand, it's 300 grand. So right. that, that is, that is a role decision, right? And we have lots of those around the company, lots of places where roles have total power to mm-hmm. make shit happen. But that, that power was given to them through consent, through the group agreeing that it's safe to try. Most of the like power that happens is actually the power to object not the power to, to consent. And so, so like things are going to happen unless it's proposed and somebody's like, I don't think this is safe to try. And that's a power that typically within a team is, is shared. Like every role has that capacity to be like, wait a second, because frankly, we play from position. So like if someone in a finance role and someone in HR role and someone in a growth role and someone in a sales role are like seeing this thing, this idea, I actually want them each to look at it through that lens. And if sales is like, this is a terrible idea. I want to hear that, you know, I want to actually like play with that a little bit before I try to like say, well, I love it. So it's happening. Um, and, and it's funny cause we had something in the, in, in our last retreat, we have an initiative going around a campaign. We're doing a, a marketing campaign and the idea that was selected by the group that was entrusted with that money in that initiative, um, that came forward was really divisive. Like people that heard about it were like, whoa, 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 that's, we do not consent to that. We're not okay with it. And it was an interesting test of our model because ultimately it boiled down to, did we consent to give this team the power to make this decision and the, and the money to do it and the state and the scope to handle it? Are there, are they colleagues with good reputation? They got to do it. They like, they're going to do it. And it doesn't really matter whether we like it or not. So that was kind of an interesting moment Mm -hmm. to see something happen that was not popular. Cause I think sometimes when people hear me talk, they're like, oh, everything is, everything's kumbaya consensus popularity contest. And it's really not like. Lots yeah. of unpopular stuff happens, but it happens in places where, where the power to do that was consented to. And yeah. so it's like, we gave them the power to make an unpopular choice and they did. And now they're doing it and we'll see how it does. And we'll learn from it as a system, Yeah, which I'm excited about whether it's good or bad. I, I love personally, like I'm very, uh, motivated by organizational tension that leads to learning. Like yeah. if we can get a little disrupted along the way and actually learn some deep lessons, I love that. Cause that's like, so resiliency building, so capacity building, you know, it's not, it's more dramatic and people sometimes don't like me for that reason, but yeah, that's fine. Like, but you know, I <laughs> yeah, mean, that's like, yeah, it's like being, it's like being raising any system or a garden or a child or anything. Like you want just enough failure and just enough disruption to create strength. Right. These are anti-fragile systems, right? Organizations are anti-fragile systems or they can be. Yeah. Well, so circling back to one of the earlier conversations, um, talking about performance management, but specifically around the topic of communication around performance management. Yeah. Yeah. If, if somebody is a poor performer, do you, what is, what is the next step? You, you have now made the decision. We have to let this person go Mm. for whatever reason. Maybe there's like a culture issue. They just aren't delivering like they used to, or the sure. needs have expanded and they're no longer filling that role. Do you, do you let them set their own narrative for why they're leaving and just be quiet about it? Do you announce to the team that somebody's being removed for performance reasons to make an example of them? Like, what is the, mm. what is the correct approach here? And I, yeah. I realize that every culture handles this differently. 
Totally. I'm, I'm curious what, what some of the models are that are not pathological. That's a great way to phrase it. I mean, one thing I'll say as a caveat is we're running a ground here of employment law. And so I think there, there are things that I think are good practice that are not necessarily legal practice. So, so what is allowed versus what is, what is ultimately best for human beings, I think are not, not necessarily the same thing. That's the first thing I'll say. Sometimes it's true that like, you, you know, you can't really broadcast exactly what happened and that's, that's the way it is. So we live with that. But what I would say generally is, is two things. Number one, if we're doing a good job in our feedback and, and reputation economy, long before someone is asked to leave, everyone is aware of what's going on. <laughs> Just because they're there, they're present for the for the kinds of feedback and information flows that are going to happen when something isn't getting delivered because it's constant. Like we have a weekly action meeting where we're asking, you know, what's what do you need and what's on what needs to be unblocked and and what is the status of all of our most important initiatives in every team in the business, whether that's done asynchronously or synchronously. Like the the writing's on the wall. If shit is not happening and someone's not delivering, people on that team know for sure. The whole system may not. So to your yeah, point, that's like. It's local, not global, right? Um, the second thing is once we've, once we've kind of come to that conclusion or, or things are starting to get clearer, there's probably a conversation that's not a formal conversation happening with that person, maybe with an, you know, an elected leader or steward of their team, maybe with a formal leader in, in another model, whatever the case may be, where the conversation is like, hey, this probably isn't working out, right? Like, are we going to go one more round at this or do you want to kind of set an agenda for yourself? And we've had plenty of people opt out of our system on their own terms yeah. when they're like, I'm an adult. I can read the room like this is not going well. I'd like to work for the next six weeks to get out of here and do a good job doing that. And I and here's what I need to be successful in that. And we're like, great, do it. So, you know, I've, I've even told people, I mean, candidly, like I've told people like, I, I think I think you're done here. I'm not firing you, but like I'm not I don't see I don't see a way to get out of this spin. So what do you want to do? How can I help you with with that acknowledgement? So, so I think that's the first thing. And then, and then if, if you're at a point where it is a conversation, like you're, you're done here, then I think often the conversation we'll have with them, if there's space and they haven't, and nothing has happened, that's too egregious. There's a conversation about like, how do we want to share this? What's, what's useful to the team with a learning agenda. So the idea is like, Hey, this is done. We're going to take really good care of you. You know, you're going to move on. You're going to have a better fit somewhere else anyway. And here's nine pieces of evidence that has always happened. And the fact that this didn't work out is a learning opportunity for us. So what can we share with the team that will help everybody to learn about what happened here about you and us and, 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 and treating that really honestly. And then there might be a parting note from them or a parting note from us about them or both that would be like, Hey, here's what happened. Here's what we learned sanitized for HR preferences, but like still getting into the meat of like, Hey, here's what we did. We bit off more than we could chew. We put this person in three roles worth of work instead of one. And, and it, you know, totally forked their, their year or, you know, that we're a place that really seems to prize reliability. And, and now we know that, and this was a situation where this person was like wildly creative, but not able to be reliable. So here's a look, I think just even a few nuggets of like taking accountability on both sides. And then ultimately what's the learning for the organization. That's where I like to get off if possible. And I'd say, you know, do we pull that off every time? Hell no. But, but when we do, I'm like, mm, that was clean. That was Perfect. And, and then you find out three months later, like that person is a director at wherever and they're doing sure. great, you know? Yeah. I, so the, the problem is the, is the global problem, not the local problem. Yep. Yep. That's the one that like, I, I've only 
been made aware of this recently within the last few weeks mm-hmm. that people who were on the teams knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. But everyone else were in the dark. And, and that's like, it's not just that they're in the dark. It's that like in the, in the service of being kind to people and allowing them to save face mm-hmm. and protect their reputation. These are, these are a lot of the words that are being used internally. Um, yep. In order to do that, we have created a tremendous amount of anxiety for the majority of the team who feel like they could be next at any morning. moment. At any yeah. moment, we have no idea why these things happened. Like, why are why is all this stuff happening? Do you have so, an agreement about how people are asked to leave? I know, and I think we should. I actually, I sent a note about that very recently to the team. It's a huge boon because then that uncertainty goes away. If you basically stand yeah. up as the CEO and you're like, this is the agreement that the leadership team came up with for how people are asked to step away. We follow this every time to the letter. It has caveats for harassment and instant firing and all those things that need to be in there. But like, if you're not doing that, this is how it works. Then everybody can breathe and be like, well, nobody's, nobody's put me through step one of that. Um, and, and now that's one piece of the puzzle for sure. I think that that adds a lot of value. And then the other piece is, is yeah, figuring out how do we, um, how do we communicate what we learned without making it about the person? And this is another place. I mean, you've heard me barking about roles for a long time now, but it's another place where I think roles are really helpful where it's like in this role, this role was unable to do this, or this person was unable to inhabit this role successfully because of X, Y, and Z, as opposed to saying Phil's a low performer because Phil's not a low performer, like in the right situation, in the right context with the right instrument in his hand, he's a high performer, but in this role, it wasn't working. And here's why. And then people can be like, oh shit, I see that like, that's what's expected in that kind of role and why there was maybe some issues there. And like, if I want to know more, I yep. can go find out from the team. But just uh, some something about that gives it a little distance where it's no longer about the person, it's about the context. And that's what really matters yeah. anyway. It's like, we, you know, this was not working out and now we need to find someone who can inhabit this role and kick ass. What's yeah, and I, like? it's, also, it's, a, it's also role over time because yep. the role changes. As Absolutely, changes. yeah. We've actually, we've had this arc recently with um, my co-founder, David, who started out doing really well on product, didn't have the experience to lead the entire product org. We moved him into a different role and he's now doing extremely well and we're adding (laughs) more and more responsibility onto him. Yeah. So just like finding, finding where people's sweet spot is at any given time. It's like sometimes the... Sometimes the the function can grow faster than you realize, and then you end up on. Ideally, I mean, yeah, that's the ideal right. scenario, right? That's what you want to have right. happen: is you want the uh, the organization to outgrow the people because you're so successful in each of the stages. And that's one of the reasons, also, why we why we pride ourselves so much on a role mix rather than a role singular, because yep. it may be that it's like you know what, we're pulling you out of this role because you're not performing there. You're yep. really performing in this role and we're going to build another one like it that we can put you in right. or we want you to go part time or any number of other possibilities. But suddenly we have like more tools in the toolbox to play with to get maximum performance. And that's why when people ask, like, how do you achieve the levels of profitability that you do or how do you achieve what you do with the number of hours you put in? I'm like, we just get more out of ourselves because we don't treat ourselves like single action figures in the right. in the box. Like every skill that we have is deployed against a mix of roles over time. And as we get better, 
the mix changes and the rules change to your point. And it's absolutely the case that like roles are going to outgrow you or morph out of you. That's good, right? And as long as you're a player on the team who knows how to find and create new roles for yourself that add value. And in our system, you can literally propose them. I could be looking at a role I'm failing in and be like, man, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to propose a role that I can beat the shit out of. And then suddenly I'm in a role where everyone's like, wow, you're delivering and we're loving it. You know, that that's the ideal scenario. So obviously there are some people that are not in a place in their life or with their skills where they can hang and they do have to go or that they are disingenuous about commitments. They have to go. But um, but a lot more people are just like accidentally in UX when they should be in UI or they're doing testing when they should be doing, you know, engineering or something. Cool. Well, this has been this has been very helpful food for thought. I'm going to be doing a lot of writing over the next few weeks to try to sort this out for ourselves. Um, cool. But yeah, I, I really appreciate you making the time. This is yeah. a this is a helpful perspective. Likewise, yeah, it's useful for me too because the, as as we build Murmur, I'm having to learn how to communicate and build around these different perspectives and compromises and priorities and trade-offs. And it's like, it doesn't do anybody any good to have a tool that is so principled that nobody can use it. Yeah. At the same time, I want to offer some of the juice for the squeeze here to, to the broadest number of people. So every yeah. conversation like this is really useful to me. The language that you use around an operating system is very interesting. Mm. And I, I think sometimes just knowing what agreements you should have yeah. is really helpful. Like I, I, my friend Zach Goldberg is writing a book on like running technology and engineering teams as a CTO. Uh, it wants to, he wants to be like, uh, uh, what's that guy's name who wrote, uh, the great CEO within, um, yes. Matt mockery, I think is his name, something like that. Um, he wants to make the same book, but for CTOs. Okay. And yeah. Like one of the things that I, yeah, one of the things I really got out of Zach's book was saying that uh, making it clear what the what the process is for firing somebody actually reduces anxiety. Yeah, because people know it's like, well, as long as I'm not, if I don't have a pip in front of me, it means I'm not going to suddenly be fired without warning. Right. So, like, just having that at least lets people know that they don't have to be on edge all the time. And I, I hadn't really thought of that before, but you, you mentioned something very similar, and that makes me think that we really need to do something similar. Yeah, I, I can't say that enough, which is like clarity, 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 clarity. Like, what is the shortest, simplest way to have clarity about anything that is debatable, emotional, scary, frustrating, any of that? Like, that is the name of the game. And the, the shorter and sweeter they are, the better. But then people are just like, I know, I know, you know, I don't have to guess. I don't have to like read Sam's face in the meeting. It's just like, this is this is how we play the game. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think at the end of the day, most of what I do is just teach people Monopoly. Gotta have a rule book. Yeah.